0: Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania, is almost here. We're with Peyton Reed, the filmmaker behind the threequel, which is going to open to $280 million around the world this weekend. It's all about Kang. This whole idea of Kang the Conqueror being the main baddie, where did this all come from? When did this start and whose idea was it? Was it the Smoking Man from X Files? Does he show up in a meeting room at Marvel and say, "I think it should be Kang," and everyone's like, "It should be Kang."
1: Not, not quite so mysterious. Um, you know, really, it was it was a couple of things. You know, when we decided there was going to be a third Ant Man movie, we I wanted to do something you know different than we'd done in the first couple of movies, and one of those was really. Um, a logical progression to the story we'd set up in the first two, but to spend time in the quantum realm, right, and to answer this question of what the hell was Janet Van Dyne doing down there for 30 years? Um, And it occurred to us that the the quantum realm, in addition to being, you know, uh, visually striking, was a great place to introduce uh, an antagonist in the movie. I grew up reading those comics, and one of the sort of, uh, you know, Mount Rushmore of the Marvel Comics villains was Kang the Conqueror uh, who had not been introduced into the MCU. So, uh, Kevin and our producer, Stephen Broussard and I talked about what it'd be sort of insane to pit these unlikely Avengers, Ant-Man and the Wasp against Tang the Conqueror. It seems on the face of it a very lopsided confrontation, but there was dramatic tension in that. And how do we pull that off? Um, and it also felt like, you know, in 2015, when the first Ant-Man came out, Scott Lang was sort of, playing in the margins, right? He was nowhere near being an Avenger. And the idea of now he's sort of front and center and and actually even an elder statesman in the Avenger. Let's beat Scott Lang up a little bit and let's put him up against a a really formidable foe in the movie.
0: So the whole idea of, of Kang as a character in the MCU began with your movie and then it permeated over to Loki?
1: That's right, yeah. The idea was like, really creating like in these different so-called phases of, of the MCU like what's going to be the sort of uh spine of that phase what's going to be the through line um and if phase four was really sort of introducing some some new marvel characters phase five wanted to have a, a sort of strong point of view about the what the next thing was and and you know Thanos in, in the Avengers movies obviously cast a very large shadow Kang was interesting because it dovetailed with this idea in the comics he's a time traveler but it it made sense for this sort of multiversal story uh, that he could hop through the different universes in the multiverse. Um, so that was the idea, and then it was, you know, as uh, as Loki was doing the the TVA, the Time Variance Authority, it, it made sense that we meet, we start meeting these variants because in the comics, they're uh, he's a nexus being, right? So they're they're variants of this guy. But as it sort of lays out you know, he who remains in Loki lays the groundwork for this idea that like, oh, there's another guy out there. You don't want to meet that guy. He's the worst of them all. And it's, it's Kang the Conqueror, right? So we knew this was going to be the guy. He was going to culminate here with, with Kang the Conqueror, who's, who's the most powerful of all of them. Uh, and there's a reason he's in the quantum realm.
0: Now, did you base the movie on any specific comic book?
1: No, again, that was one of the fun things too, is, you know, the, uh, the idea of sort of introducing the quantum realm in the comics, it had been the microverse and the Avengers spent some time there. And I think fantastic Four did too, but really it was, uh, it was free for us to sort of create those environments and the creatures and the beings down there and all of that. And to tell the story, what it did for us in this story was we wanted to answer that question, what Janet was doing down there. And we love the idea that like in introducing Kang and this idea that, in a franchise about really family, which you know the animated movies are about those family dynamics, playing with the idea of you know the secrets that family members keep from each other, and Janet Van Dyne really had the biggest secret to tell, right? This idea of she really hadn't told the family anything about her time down there, and most importantly, hadn't told them about her encounter with Kang. It struck us as this was a great way to introduce this new antagonist, give them a personal relationship with one of our heroes and further both stories in the process
0: now when marvel decides when they set phases how is that determined is there a theme around it is is phase 5 is the theme multiverse or is the theme deconstruction of you know intergalactic universes i'm just curious yeah. when they set phases is there a uh, is there a conceit behind it
1: I'll be honest with you, I think when we started this movie, certainly when we started writing it, but I think even when we started shooting it, we uh we didn't realize we were kicking off phase 5. We just knew we had a, 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 an awesome villain in the movie, um and I think when I screened my director's cut for Marvel and it was like, well, this is this feels essential and this feels like, you know, looking at Jonathan's performance and and the version of Kang, I think that sort of cemented things and it was like, well, this is this is pointing the way toward you know, what this next phase could be. I think that's been true of even like in the first Ant-Man. I can't remember if we were the last movie of phase one or the first of phase two. I don't even remember it. It felt at the time, it felt kind of arbitrary to me. But I know going into all of the movies, I had no idea what phase we were in.
0: So Jonathan Majors as Kang. Again, you said the character it was first decided that he would be used in your movie before he segued over to Loki, even though we saw him in Loki first.
1: Well, there was, yeah, there was a writing, there was a writing plan about how he was going to, the varied was going to be introduced in Loki first. And then, uh, Kang the Conqueror introduced in our movie. So when it came time to casting Jonathan, there were discussions because he had to work for both roles. Um, whoever this actor was going to be. So he was going to be in one episode of season one of Loki, but he was going to be the main villain in our movie. So, um, it was important that he work for that because they're very different characters. He who remains is one thing. He's more sort of this, you know, gadfly of a character and, and Kang the Conqueror is something altogether different. So he needed what he needed to be in quantum mania. I think, you know, we needed someone who was physically imposing and
0: someone who was a warrior. He's amazing in a yeah. word. He's, he's really sublime. And I'm, can you tell me about the casting of him, how you guys settled on him did you read him? Was there something that you saw? Because, I mean, it—he it, it, takes villain to a whole other level.
1: Well, I'll be honest with you. I, you know, there were a few people talked about. I really wanted Jonathan. I would seen everything he had done up to that point, and and I think maybe the first thing I saw him in was Hostiles. Um, he had a very small role in Hostiles, and there's a scene where he is—spoiler uh, alert—lying in bed dying and uh, Christian Bale sitting there talking and, uh, to, to his friend who's dying. And it's really Christian Bale scene, right? Christian Bale has most of the dialogue in the scene, but you could not take your eyes off this guy lying in bed. And it's like, who is that guy? And he just had this charisma. Um, and I've seen everything he's done since. And there's this um, chameleon-esque aspect to Jonathan, right? But the common, the common thing that runs through all his performances is, you buy that guy. He, there's a truth to his performance and he's really exciting. You know, there, there are um, actors who have that thing and there are actors who don't, and he just has that thing. And in addition to having that unquantifiable thing, he's a classically trained theater actor. I mean, he's a Yale drama school guy. And and we both grew up in the South. He went, he went to uh North Carolina school of the arts before Yale. There's a, there's a warmth to him and an openness to him and a depth to Jonathan and uh, we had many, many conversations long before we started shooting anything on the movie, um, you know, and this was during the pandemic, you know, and just sort of like Zooming and, and then and having calls and everything about who this character was gonna be in the movie. And we talked about, you know, what would, a guy, what would it be like talking to someone who didn't live time in a straight line? He lived in these loops and experienced trauma that way. And I don't know, he, he just is, um, he's a powerhouse. And I loved, uh, for my movie, selfishly, Bringing that very different energy in conflict with Paul Rudd's, you know, very carefree Scott Lang, that seemed like that was going to be exciting.
0: Now, where where did you shoot?
1: We shot the whole movie at Pinewood in London. We did uh, a series of visual effects, you know, shoots back in LA. After that, there's there's a a very uh, a very intricate scene with a uh, a lot of Paul Rudd's in it. Uh, and that was a thing that we shot over a couple of weeks in uh, in L.A. with Paul, which was a, uh, a beast of a scene on its own. And I think probably physically just couldn't have been done if it weren't for Paul Rudd's skill at playing opposite himself and keeping it spontaneous and alive. How long did it take to shoot that sequence? Paul and I were talking about the other day because it's all a blur. But I think it took like a couple of weeks because, you know, it's just Paul. But we had you know, all the guys from uh, from ILM down there and we had to place him precisely and do these very specific camera moves. And some of it was motion control and some of it wasn't, but like Paul had to sort of remember you know what the previous Paul was doing. We would play back and get it. It just was such a technically challenging scene that it could break your brain. And again, if it weren't for Paul's just facility with that and his cadences and his memory of remembering what the previous version he did, and he did it shockingly, uh, you know, really efficiently. It was, it, was, it was kind of stunning to watch.
0: That was a massive one-person show, I got to yeah. imagine. yeah, Because yeah, you're yeah. positioning him in different, I mean, there's a, there's a thousand different situations. Shockingly yeah. Enough.
1: And there's a first section of it where he's sort of just standing there and they're replicating. <clears throat> but then it gets into some action stuff where he's running and he's climbing and there are all the other Scots. And it just became a, uh, it was a technical nightmare. And and thanks to our you know our visual effects supervisor doing all uh, this sort of tech viz and all this technical stuff I won't bore you with it was just uh, it ran about as smoothly as something like that could run but um, I don't know if I'd want to do that
0: again. Are you doing VFX while you're on stage? Like obviously I gotta imagine the whole sequence shot against green screen, but do you have VFX people building the scene out, kind of sort of mapping it while he's acting this out live on live on set?
1: Yeah, they've done. We've already done you know. I've done a version where we storyboarded it and then we've previs the thing before we shot it. So so I know what shot I'm doing. And then we do a, what's called tech vis after that. So we know the relative distance between this specific lens to where this guy's got to be and how it interacts and the timing of it all that we then have to replicate with Paul in live action. And that's where the train could go off the track because you're forcing someone into a rhythm and it just could kill the spontaneity of the scene. And that's again, where Paul was able to just nail it. And we could, you know, we had flexibility, but we'd have editors, uh, there with us, you know, cutting Paul against Paul to make sure the timing worked as we were shooting. That, that was crucial because,
0: you know, you just needed to know that the timing worked. Your production design, absolutely gorgeous. What was your inspiration? Well, I'll tell you,
1: we, uh, we used the, uh, my production designer, Will Tay, who, uh, is based here in London, uh, just phenomenal. And, and I wanted to do something that, you know, we owned the quantum realm, right? It was, you know, we're the only movies in the MCU that have used it with the exception, I guess, of them traveling through the quantum realm in Endgame. game. But um, I wanted to do something that really, we had to very quickly sell the idea that there are worlds within worlds and all these different civilizations that are populated by different creatures and beings and stuff. And, you know, I looked at electron microscope photography, heavy metal magazine, right? From the seventies and eighties, yeah. all those, old science fiction paperback covers and those commercial artists who painted those, which I just loved, like one image that would draw you into like, oh, I got to read this book. I have no idea what it's about, but that painting is fucking awesome. Um, all that stuff and everything from, you know, a dash of Star Wars or Alien or Flash Gordon and all these things. That, and it it gave us the liberty to do that because we had to say that there are different, it wasn't one planet, right? It's all these different worlds. Uh, and all these different civilizations that have been conquered by Kang and, you know, they run off of their their territory and they form these freedom fighters. Um, but I, we put together this insane group of mad visual artists and really had them open their portfolios. And I, and I was like, show me everything. Show me some of the most whacked out, hard science fiction concepts that you have that maybe haven't fit into any other project. And let's see if we can find a, a space for that. At the same time, Jeff Loveness, who, you know, um, comes from the Rick and Morty world, which is all about these whacked out science fiction concepts. And we both sort of, you know, I grew up loving Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the the book and the radio show, but like whatever, you know, sort of comedic and and very strange science fiction conceits, let's just throw everything in there.
0: What's next for you in the MCU?
1: Uh, A nap uh, in in the cushiest MCU break room that they
0: have. I'd love for you to take a stab at Star Fox. I think that should be yours.
1: Oh, wow.
0: The Harry Styles thing coming yeah. off of this.
1: I loved when Harry... I'm sorry. I loved when Harry Styles showed up at the uh, in a tag at the end of that movie. It's like, wait, who's it? What? I was I into it. think that's
0: it. the highest grossing Marvel movie of all time. <laughs> the what Star. If it could be,
1: uh, it's got to be a musical, though. It's gotta, if you got Harry, it's yeah. got to be a musical. Um, listen, Marvel has this seemingly infinite amount of characters, you know, again, and I grew up reading most of them. Um, I have no idea what's next. I really, you know, we, you know, these movies get so dense and we really just sort of finished the last visual effects things only a handful of weeks ago. So, you know, you're just sort of, you're, you're, you're finishing the thing. And then just like,
0: okay, I gotta, I gotta. Have- when does it determine that there's a fourth one? I mean, obviously this is going to be the highest grossing one. There's no question about that.
1: Well, let's hope so. I don't know. I mean, listen, I've never known when we finished one. I mean, we were talking recently about we did the first Ant-Man and the real issue back then was like, our audience is going to accept a character called Ant-Man who shrinks and talks to ants. Uh, that's at that at that point in time, that was like, that was not a guaranteed thing, right? Or will they accept Paul Rudd as a superhero? None of these things were guaranteed. So I, there was never a point where we knew there was going to be a next one. At the tail end of the first Ant-Man, when it was really, it felt like it was working. Then there were discussions. We knew, we had the Russo brothers in, you know, cause they were doing Captain America Civil War at that point. And I showed them footage cause they wanted to work him into into that thing. So obviously at that point we knew, um, but you never, I think, it's, uh, I think it's hubris to sort of uh, assume that you're gonna get another one.
0: <laughs> Before we go, you've been behind some classic romantic comedies. Bring it on. The breakup. What's your feeling about the genre now on the big screen? Do you think there's hope after Ticket to Paradise? I do think there's
1: hope. I mean, I feel like it is a genre that has existed for many, many decades. And I think with the right story and the right casting and the right, you know, something just hitting the zeitgeist, you know, that is an absolutely viable genre. I don't know that, like, I don't know that this young generation has what, you know, would be their, uh, their flagpole. They're pretty comedy. woman. They're pretty woman or their Annie Hall or whatever one you want, want to pick. Um, but there's no way the romantic comedy is dead. I mean, it's, it's sort of migrated to streaming for now, but I think there's got it, you know, there's definitely a version of a romantic comedy that is going to draw a, an audience. And I think hopefully a younger audience in to see them because when they work, there's there's nothing better, and there's nothing better like to it. Just this, the emotion it gives you, and also just the repeat viewing quality of a great romantic comedy. Peyton Reed, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Appreciate your time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.